Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. The COVID pandemic continues to impact society and cripple organisations, our workplaces, our home lives and the way in which we simply exist. The impact on the art sector has been considerable. The trickle on damage for producers to production houses and performers, creatives, front of house, stage crew, musicians, ushers, publicists and so many associated roles has been enormous. My guest today has certainly felt the kick from COVID. Twice she has been set to make her directorial debut with a brand new production of the Pulitzer Prize winning musical A Chorus Line with the Darlinghurst Theatre Company. The company recently made the difficult decision to postpone the production once again, following a postponement in 2020. Such is the precarious and volatile times we are navigating. Today, though, Stages welcomes Amy Campbell to Centre Stage. Amy is one of Australia's most accomplished dance talents with a career spanning all areas of the entertainment industry. Her many hats have included dancer, dance captain, resident director, choreographer and director-in-waiting. Let's hope she accomplishes that mantle sooner rather than later. She is uncommonly rare, very unique, peripatetic, poetic and chic. Amy Campbell, welcome to The Stages Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, let me start off with a curly one. Um, do you believe in third time lucky? Yes, I know. I don't have a choice right now, I think. <laughs> I'm referring, of course, to the, the recent um, postponement, once again, for the second time of your uh, debut directorial um, go at uh, a new production of A Chorus Line, which was to play at the Eternity Theatre for the Darlinghurst Theatre Company. Yes. Uh, look, I'm hoping it's third time lucky, hey? Uh <laughs> At least it gives me a little bit more time to iron out the kinks. <laughs> so the first time we'd done four previews and we closed on our opening night. And this time around we were about to announce our brand new cast and we're about um, a, a couple of weeks shy of starting rehearsal. Yeah, I, I didn't realise that you probably did have some new cast members because 12 months ago when you went into your first preview and then the great shutdown happened, uh, of course, yes. all of those actors and performers would go off to to seek other work if they could. Correct, yeah. I mean, um, as so many things have happened because of these shutdowns, of course, but that means that uh, everybody is looking for work and there's a lot of work available when, when we're allowed to do the things. So, um, yeah, it's casting at the moment is, um, is it's a great time to be a human when you get to work. <laughs> but aside from that, you know, <laughs> a lot of quiet artists today. <laughs> Have, uh, has a new season been rescheduled? No, uh, we haven't got dates exactly yet, but we are coming back in 2022 at some point. The sooner yeah, I, the better, I say. First of January. Let's go. <laughs> well, it's it's getting your ducks to all fall in line, isn't it? I mean, it's the availability of the space and the performers and the director and uh, all sorts of things. Yeah, well, for the third time, it, it's about, yeah, aligning all of that. Um, and, look, I take my hat off to any producer in this country right now who are just so brave and uh, tenacious to even think about what 2022 looks like. So, uh, yes, it, it will be aligning all the things and all of the stars again to get this thing up on the stage. I can sense your optimism just um, through this Zoom platform. And I have to uh, <laughs> cite a quote that, that I read um, at the postponement from you saying that blood and sweat and tears don't date. 
<laughs> Look, I have to put my absolute faith in optimism right now. It's um, it's it's the thing that I look forward to, and I know where what we're experiencing is temporary. Uh, and if not for great art, then why do we keep pursuing this thing? So, yeah, I mean, I think I. I'm definitely being tested, as is many, you know, wonderful humans at this time. But, yeah, I'm not okay. I'm actually careful of words, Amy. Uh, I am totally okay to put more blood and sweat and tears into this career. Well, it's certainly a show that um, requires a lot of that. When did A Chorus Line first enter your life? When did you first discover it? Oh, I would say my first experience of it was watching uh, a VHS of it at my grandmother's uh, up in Grafton in regional New South Wales. She had it on video and she would put it on for all the grandkids and that I would have been six, I think, at the time. So, you know, we're talking <laughs> a while ago, about 30 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, yes, I remember watching it in the summer school holidays at her, her house, actually one of my favourite childhood memories. Uh, that would have been, of course, the Richard Attenborough film of A Chorus Line. Yes, it was. Which yes. copped a lot of flack, really. I mean, it didn't measure up to nearly as close to the excellence that the stage production is. I mean, that, that seemed to be the, the critique of it. How did you feel when you discovered yes, the stage show? Um, look, when I first saw the show and when you're six, you don't really have that kind of, you know, critical eye. <laughs> but uh, once I discovered the stage show, I just thought it, it got even more complex and more interesting and, and highlighted even more storytelling. So I like both works and, um, you know, apart being an 80s kind of kid, I'm aligned to the 80s, but um, it's such a special work. And, and once I discovered the stage show, to know that those artists did that live on stage every night um, was uh, enlightening and inspiring. It opens with a 12-minute dance sequence that explores almost every style of, of dance it certainly zips along from the from the start and, and really grabs the the audience uh and engages them from the, the opening moments it does it was one of my favorite things to um re-choreograph because uh, our production of course is the very first production in this country to have brand new direction and choreography it's never been done before it's always usually presented with the original so to get to tackle that 12 minute number with my own uh imagination was uh so exciting and intimidating and i think the cast um uh, they were they were uh, pleasantly surprised and challenged by what we came up with. <laughs> so, so like West Side Story, where you know it um, it states that you must use the Jerome um, I'm just going to say Jerome Kern Jerome Robbins choreography. Is that the same? Has it been the same with the chorus line that that productions need to or the professional productions need to uh, adopt that Michael Bennett choreography? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's um, only been very recently that the estate has um, uh, negotiated rights for new creatives to put their uh, spin on it, but it's always been Michael Bennett's original choreography and direction, apart from, obviously, my show. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I see it, I liken it to um, watching the film of Titanic. You you know how it's going to end, but you sort of want it to, to feel end a little bit differently. I want all of those, those I, I, are there 16 dancers on the line? I want all of them to get the gig. Yes, you do. You sure want all of them to get the gig. And I think if you do, if you pay homage to the story, then the audience should feel like it's familiar, but also for the first time they're discovering that who gets the job and who doesn't. Um, if, if, we, if you can generate that feeling, then I think you've done the production successfully. Um, it's an extraordinary show in winning nine Tony Awards and, and a Pulitzer Prize for, for drama, but just its, its conception. I mean, it's verbatim theatre almost. Um, tell me about uh, how its evolution, how it came to be. Well, originally, look, there are many stories and uh, I wasn't there, so I've done all my research, but I'm sure there are many stories with artists that um, <laughs> of how it came to it. But essentially, Michael Bennett got together a group of peers and colleagues uh, and sat down one evening to talk about their real stories as performers and artists as Broadway dancers. Um, many rumours are about how the show came about, um, but essentially he had a tape recorder and sat around drinking red wine uh, and talking to all of his friends about their childhood and their um, 
experiences as performers. There is a rumour that he paid them a whole dollar for their time that evening. Um, and whether or not that's true, we'll, we'll let uh, other people debate. And then from there, that was the concept of how the show got developed before it went to a workshop and then eventually made its, uh, its debut 1975 at the public. So, so with this new production, you, you'll be creating a new dance language for the show. How do you breathe new life into a vehicle that is now 46 years old? How do you find a contemporary resonance but still honour, you know, that, that, uh, that vibe from 1975? Yeah, the best thing I quick can do is to use everything I know from my career as a dancer and my insight that I had um, trained in lots of different genres to pay tribute to how hard those dancers worked in 1975. Uh, stylistically, that interpretation of American Broadway jazz was very athletic. It was extremely uh, stylized and, and very technical um, uh, uh, physicality for that cast. So I, I wanted to honor those elements, but then take the absolute pressure off it having to look like that. Um, I wasn't there in the 70s. I have, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know something I don't know, but what I do know is what it feels like to create moments where you feel like you take flight as a dancer. And I know that feeling from many moments in my time as the performer. So um, I just use that as my instinct to hopefully um, to pay tribute to and honour the choreography without going anywhere near trying to reinterpret what that was. So, yes, I just I took the essence of my of, of the work, um, you know, and and gave it my own imagination using the amazing cast that are now in 2021 and a brilliant, beautiful Australian cast who have their own, you know, unique style. So it was really creating on the incredible artists um, who brought their own artistry and style to the show as well. The, the conceit of the show for the, for the audience is also quite genius, I think. We, we are locked into an audition for an hour and a half or, or whatever the, the running time of the show, which we can't escape. I mean, it, it creates that same tension and, and pressure, what, what it is like for a performer to be going through the audition steps. Um, as a performer yourself, do you enjoy the audition process? No, absolutely not. It's the worst <laughs> part of being a performer. <laughs> Um, well, I, I love that element about this show because it doesn't try to be something it's not. It is about a, a window into the world of what it is to audition for, for a commercial musical. And I love that the audience, especially in the production that we have, are so intimately a part of that experience. It's almost like they're sitting on the stage with the actors. So they really get that, um, that tension from the pressure of being judged for a good, you know, 107 minutes. Um, uh, do I like auditions? N no. Do I love being on the other side of the panel now? So much better. Well, that's <laughs> um, I was right. terrible at auditioning too. Like I just suffered so much anxiety and nerves. Like awful. I don't even know how people gave me a job sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> what was the audition process for, for this production? What did you put your dancers through? How did you decide who you wanted to, to cast in the show? Well, we all sat around and drank red wine. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> if only. Um, yeah, so we want. I wanted to be incredibly transparent with an audition process like this. It is such a rare moment to be able to cast something from scratch and have no preconceived ideas um, or have to look to a, a different model to try and feel over here. So I just wanted to open it up and we did open calls as well as agent calls so just that everyone had accessibility to the audition was important to me we had so many submissions uh it was overwhelming which is exciting but intimidating so we did a combination of live in-person auditions uh and then also um, people were self-taping and sending it in too but they all had to pass a dance round a singing round another dance round scene work pairing them up and then a final third dance round, you know, because I have to see if they really want to hang around for this whole process. Um, and it was, it was, oh, it's so, it's amazing. We're, we have so many amazing dancers here and, um, and actors and singers, but to really showcase a, a triple threat is, um, is a privilege I don't take lightly. And I just wanted to honour how hard it, how hard these performers work so yes hopefully they enjoyed it they 
sore but definitely sore and um, and and sweaty by the end of it but that just gave them a taste of the world that we were about to create once um, casting was announced. Having been on both sides of the audition table it must give you tremendous empathy for what they're going through. A hundred percent. I try and create a room full of um, full of joy if I'm honest because uh I think the days of, you know, auditions being intimidating or being about power or, you know, um, anything other than let's all work together to make something incredible and uh, uh, I think those days are over. So for me, kindness and joy is the way to access people once they're relaxed and, um, you know, feeling confident because the thing is I want them to be good. I so want them to walk into the room and be like, I'm the human you should hire. Uh, that makes my job heaps easy. So mm. um, I try and always, you know, communicate really clearly. And at the end of the day, everybody knows that there are never enough jobs for the amount of applicants. So to create an experience that feels like um, it's honouring people's artistry in a really professional forum, I think is, is my job as a director in the room to create a room of, yes, we're all excellent, and if it's not on this project, it'll be on the next one that will land. Yes, auditions, that, that necessary evil. We we all have had that experience with the big commercial fair of going into a room and there's up to, you know, 14, 15 people behind a table, all with resting bitch face, and you can't present your best work, can you, when you're, you're facing a firing squad like that? Well, I think it's difficult, yes, but... Um, you know, 14 people is a lot. I mean, my production didn't have that many people. I think there was maybe three of us sitting in the audience, so less intimidating. Um, but, yeah, look, I think some people thrive in that uh, environment, but I don't think it's the majority. So <laughs> I'd rather create towards the majority of creating a, you know, a much more rewarding experience. You worked for a, a casting agency too for a while, didn't you? <laughs> Um, I, when I, yes, my work, very first work experience was for a TV casting agency. Um, uh, my very first day I was given the money to go get the coffees. And so off I went and I didn't know where I was. I was lost in North Sydney somewhere. And I came back with all the coffees for the director and the casting agent and I tripped over the front step and they went flying on my first day. So I really nailed that. Um, <laughs> And I thought, you know what, this show is, it's for me. <laughs> but um, it was actually, uh, I was, I, I didn't realise at the time, but to be so early on learning about the other side and how different casting processes can be depending on people's vision um, and just how, you know, it, it cannot even sometimes be, you know, who I would assume would be a shoe-in for the role could be not who the director chose. So it was a really beautiful lesson in things just landing where they're supposed to and letting go of opportunities that, you know, uh, perhaps aren't yours to have in that moment. So when did Amy Campbell start dancing? Was it, Did it begin with, with the ballet? Uh, do you mean dancing well or just? <laughs> oh, just, just when did you think, did you, did you say to your parents, I want to dance, I want to go off to class or? Or did you, did you go off yeah, to well, actually, school? I think I was a born mover, uh, put a song on and I'll have a little dance. Uh, in kindergarten, I took the class for a full dance class as I stood up on the desk and gave them a warm-up one morning. Um, and my parents were like, we probably should put her in dance classes. And I think it was the second child got a discount. So mum and dad just threw me along because I have an older sister who was already at ballet class. So they were like, well, this one's cheaper and probably less talented so I was 100% enthusiasm and not necessarily grace and um, natural ability when I started and that would have been yeah like four or five yeah is it important for a dancer to start young do you think or can can dancers evolve in their teens oh absolutely I I think now more than ever what are the rules? I mean, it just depends on what you imagine your dance career to look like. Is it a certain pathway? Is it through ballet or contemporary or is it through other different styles of dance? Um, to be honest, I think passion and drive and, um, and an ability to work hard at your craft, that's going to drive you so much further than just, yeah. No, I, I know many dancers who started later and 
um, have had incredible success um, and equally those who start really young. So I want to think in this world of so many different platforms to be a professional dancer that you you can cater to your own path. That's not to say that's not going to be difficult and you're not going to have to train your butt off in whatever your style is, Um, but that's to say that I don't think there's one formula to make it. So as you as you as you grew as you got older, were you starting to experiment and play with different styles? Did you go off to tap class and and, and jazz ballet and contemporary? Yeah, so I did. Yeah, I I grew up on the central coast, so my dance school up there. Uh, this is like in the nineties, so it was definitely a ballet school, and and then it had a little extracurricular classes you could pick up on. So I started what was called modern back then. <laughs> And, uh, and jazz. Uh, and, and then I actually am a terrible tap dancer, so I wasn't great at that class. Um, and I think just once I got to those other styles, I realised as much as I loved ballet, um, my physicality and um, my natural ability wasn't designed to become a prima ballerina as much as my heart probably loved that style the most. Um, and then I started to discover musicals and um, other forms of dance that... Yeah, um, I was um, a jack of all trades and not really a master of any. Just give me something new to learn and I sort of was always up for it. Whether or not I was good, not for me to decide. But, um, yes, I loved how many different ways you could interpret music with your body. Yeah. Um, teachers are really important to to, to foster and, and guide and, and nurture. Um, and, and the performing arts require great Discipline, of course, but but encouragement too to get the best out of a student. Who have been your great teachers through your career? Oh, that's a great one. Um, they might be colleagues that you've worked with. They might be uh, yeah. To, dance be, teachers to be honest, growing... I'm, yeah. My my very first ballet teacher was uh, Miss Susie, and she um, she was. Uh, someone I always wanted to emulate. She was beautiful and talented and lovely and so tough. Um, <laughs> so she was, she definitely um, gave me the resilience and, and, um, and encouraged me to keep, keep working hard. Um, I would say there was a choreographer called Penny Mullen who I worked with in my teens. Uh, I worked under her independent contemporary company for uh, four years and she was really influential in encouraging me to um, get the confidence to go from a core dancer to a principal dancer. Uh, And then I think my greatest teachers have been the other artists I've been so lucky to dance alongside of. Um, I've always been my harshest critic. Uh, I'm forever the one, you know, going, trying to refine the work, but dancing alongside amazing artists, you know, from my 20s to my 30s, just working alongside them and being inspired by them, they taught me the most about um, how to grow myself as a as an artist. So, oh, and then, of course, there's a million choreographers that I love that have, you know, pushed me in so many ways, namely um, Kelly Abbey is a very important choreographer in, in my life. Um, she Her work is fantastic and um, really helped me learn more about my artistry. Jason Gilkerson, oh, pushes you like no other. He's, he's just an amazing storyteller. Um, the Square Division are amazing um, choreographic duo who are based in LA. They... They were a big influence on me as a commercial dancer. Um, yeah, there's there's been so many, and um, I don't, yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, when I reflect on it, I, a sound really old, and b um, I just it's so nice just to continually be surrounded by people who make you want to be a better artist and require you to step up in terms of what you think you're capable of. I think that's the best way you, you know, grow yourself as an artist in this in this industry. And in Australia, it's full of amazing people to be, you know, connecting with. Yeah, it's sort of that osmosis and being a sponge and just taking little bits from everybody till you formulate your own style and, and your own identity as a performer. Yeah, absolutely. And you realise you never know it at all and you never, like even as a choreographer and director now, like I am so far from finished learning. Like every project is a new chance to learn more about what it is to tell stories. So, um, I mean, I kind of find that exciting that I, I will never know the perfect formula of how to perfect a story. Yeah, I think that's really exciting. 
What about your dance heroes growing up? Were there particular choreographers? I mean, I'm talking on the world stage that were your heroes? Um, well, uh, I should tick all the boxes of the ones that, you know, everyone loves. Um, I was a massive fan of Mikhail Grishnikov. Oh, my goodness. I think my mum just thought he was cute in a lot of that stuff. So, you know, I was a big fan. Um, Sylvie Gillum is an incredible ballerina who I just, she is just like from another planet. I was just always floored by her work. Pina Bausch, incredible. Martha Graham, um, Bob Fosse, of course, when I discovered that storytelling that blew my mind. Um, yeah, there's been, you know, Jerome Robbins, how, like how do you go past, like the Alvin Ailey. Like, it's just, it seemed every time you discovered a new artist, you were blown away by their incredible discovery of movement. So, and it's still, you know, <laughs> I'm still inspired by all the artists in the world. Um, I tell you who I really um, always love at the moment is I loved, I loved watching the career tra uh, trajectory of like Tabitha and Napoleon in the States. They've just been able to emulate their art form and translate it to so many different platforms. And and they're an amazing um, duo. So, yeah, my influences are, like I've just said, everything from traditional ballet through to commercial. So, um, I don't know, I just get excited when people are good at what they do. <laughs> and, and look, and, and this generation is so fortunate with, with social media platforms and YouTube that they can access all of those great uh, historical records of, of Martha Graham or Pina Bausch or, yeah, look at the contemporary choreographers and what they're doing just through their Yeah, Instagram and you can take classes, YouTube. like, even yeah. even at the moment. Like, literally, you can do a Gaga class with, like, Bathsheba. It's, it's amazing online. So um, I'm a little envious of the generation coming through. They're going to be so much better than me. I'm so excited <laughs> for them. <laughs> now, when did this um, fascination, obsession, addiction, love, passion of musical theatre happen? Did you have cast recordings at home when you were growing up? Yes, of course. So my mother would play them as we cleaned the house. So every Saturday on would go Phantom of the Opera or Cats or, you know, what, some other show, and uh, that would be the soundtrack to cleaning the, the house. So that's where I first got my love from it, and my mum got it from her mum. And neither of them danced or ever were able to afford to go to lessons or anything like that. So um, I remember my mum taking us to Cats as the first musical I saw, which scared the crap out of me. I was so scared of those things coming through the audience and that um, that overture at the beginning, it haunted me for a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think as a child I found it really imaginative because, you know, like you said, it, I didn't have access to going and seeing a lot of the live productions. Um, it was more about I had better access to the record or to the to the soundtrack. So I loved the way that I could just imagine what the stories were as a child. I'd never studied formally musical theatre at a at an institution um, and I never actually thought I would perform in musicals. My very first agent um, said that he didn't think I would be a dancer um, and that I perhaps should pursue acting instead. Um, so I did that for a few years and then realised that no, I think I really still enjoy acting and dancing. Um, and singing was always the biggest thing for me. I was so afraid to use my voice. So I never thought I would have the skill set to be a professional musical theatre artist. Um, but, of course, my first agent just used to throw me to everything that went around. Uh, and I realised I, I did like it. I was just intimidated by it because it demanded so much of you. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of dabbled in musical theatre. Look, if you name a, a dance show that involves lycra, I've probably performed in it because that's my skill set. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I did a few legit shows, but, um, but there was always a strong dance element to them because that's obviously where my, uh, predominant skill lied. And then to be honest, um, I'd finished... I would say when I was about, maybe when I turned 30, I was really questioning my relationship to musical theatre at all. Um, uh, the stories that I was, you know, so fortunate enough to be working on, I didn't, I started to feel a little dis disconnected from them as an artist. And so I, I wondered if musicals was it for me at all. So I sort of quit 
that genre for a while um, until, of course, someone asks you if you're interested, oh, maybe would you like to choreograph this or, you know, um, another story comes along. And I swear for the first few years of being a choreographer, I used to say I hate musical theatre. I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs> like, um, but, so, but somewhere along the way I learned if you're surrounded by the people who want to tell the story the same way you want to tell the story, then that's amazing. And that's that's when I realised not every show is for me. I don't want to direct every show. I don't want to choreograph every show. But the ones that I resonate with, that's the work that I'm really passionate about. So, um, yeah, so, wow, that was a long answer to why do you like musicals. <laughs> It was it was very succinct, very succinct. <laughs> so you're 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 fulfilling a, a variety of roles as dance captain and um, assistant choreographer, and before you eventually make your choreographic debut, which I believe was Oklahoma at the production company. It was, yeah, Oklahoma. Um, I say again, I never thought I'd choreograph a legit kind of. Rogers and Hammerstein spectacular. Um, and yet there I was. Um, so yes, that was my professional choreographic musical theatre debut. Um, I'd done a lot of independent theatre before that, including Violet and In the Heights, Spring Awakening, Wicked. So I'd sort of cut my teeth doing a lot of um, different scale productions and figuring out what it is to choreograph a two and a half hour show. It's very different to choreographing a four minute routine for TV. Um, so yes, Oklahoma was my, um, my debut down there and the production company were wonderful and I had to tackle a dream ballet, uh, of, of which I was like, how do you do this <laughs> and make it interesting? Uh, so there were some really good challenges and what I loved about that show is I had to find my way of telling in a traditional story telling way because things that I really laugh at in musical theatre is when everyone faces the front on the key change and then like just all the formulaic things they just it just drives me nuts so finding a, a voice a physical voice in in that storytelling was um, a really cool challenge and made me less scared of traditional musicals well, we look at those great choreographers of musical theatre um bob fossey um who had his own particular style which again was informed by I think all of his use of hats were to cover a receding hairline <laughs> and um, uh, we yeah. all know that Fosse style. Susan Stroman uses props when she yes. often when she's choreographing. How would you define your style? Do, do you think you have a style <laughs> so far? Um, I would say muscular is my style, quite athletic, um, busy, uh, I'm, I'm still at that point where I, more is more for me in terms of um, I, I like to paint pictures in a movement vocabulary that don't feel predictable. So I don't ever like to see a dance break unless we've earned a dance break because my question to every human I work with is why, why do they start dancing now? Unless I know the why, um, I don't understand why everybody starts doing perfectly choreographed movements. So um, I like to think of at the moment it's been a lot of bringing like painted pictures to life um, and there's always something in the air, whether it's a milk crate or a bale of hay or a human, <laughs> there's always, I love the the idea of air. But, yes, I'd say just 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 muscular at this point. Um, uh, yeah, is as I um, each each show just requires such a different brain, but it's always um, fun. And I do have a couple of rules when I choreograph show. I always challenge myself to put the same step in every show, but nobody's allowed to know which step that is. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> and then um, I always um, make sure that I have um, you know what is my choreographic point of view, what am I saying with this, rather than. Here's just dance steps for steps reason. And then if there's any kind of partnering, I make sure that there's always lifts on stage that I've never seen before. So my goal is to always, you know, stick to those three rules and hope and pray that it's good. <laughs> I always think that the choreographer has one of the most difficult jobs on a musical because we know, you know, the, the actors are out there and when they can't express themselves anymore in dialogue, they sing. And, of course, then they burst into song and when they can't express that emotion anymore, they dance. So <laughs> you're coming along to continue that story. Um, That's true. Yeah, and you don't actually and, and have, yeah, so your guidelines are the music. 
essentially, and and what the text has been and what the text is going to be after the music has stopped. Um, I used to think that the choreographer's job was harder because obviously that's all I'd ever done. Um, and you don't get a script. You don't. There is no kind of framework. The movement has to be generated from scratch. So um, it takes a lot of uh, uh, a lot of prep work there. Um, however, then when I tried to direct and choreograph at the same time, I learned that the director's job is pretty tough as well. <laughs> so now they're equally challenging just in different ways. But yeah, when I when I am fortunate enough to to choreograph, yeah, it's it's equally challenging, but kind of great to have no rules um, in terms of like you must use these steps or um uh, you know, you sort of listen to the music and why the music's been written and then just try and do a physical interpretation of, of that music as to why they dance. Um, and then if you can make it, you know, if you can make people feel something as they're watching dancing, then, you know, you're pretty close to doing it successfully. Are you a fan of the Dream Ballet? I always think there's sort of a bizarre <laughs> introduction. I mean... <laughs> Of the, the musicals of the 50s, they were a staple, of course, but we see dream ballets creeping into more recent fare. Look, I don't want to throw any kind of genre under the bus. I think there's room for all of it. However, I was very intimidated to have to create a dream ballet. Um, obviously, I, you know, finished all my ballet training. It's been a massive foundation of my uh, training. Um, but then, like, myself as a, a consumer of art, I get bored really quickly. I'm like, who wants to watch a dream ballet for not 12 minutes? So um, am I a fan of them? Yeah, because I kind of love the precedent of why they existed and of how they came about in terms of storytelling. And when done well, they're beautiful. Um, but do I think every musical needs a dream ballet? Absolutely not. A lot of those could be cut right out or cut down to six minutes. So, <laughs> you know, let's think about Generation 2021 20, as opposed to the patience of an audience in the 50s. <laughs> well, I guess a, a lot of the, you know, the musicals that were written at a particular, those 50s musicals, um, a lot of those conventions like a dream ballet were there to fill time or a, a set change because the technology that was in theatres at the time was very different to what we have today. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they definitely serve a purpose and, you know, I think a, a lot of the dream ballets on film are beautiful. So I think, you know, um, they're, they're beautiful. They've served a beautiful purpose in, um, you know, acknowledging where the art form was at that time. Uh, and, yeah, I'm not, you know, I think there's a reason Hamilton doesn't have a dream ballet in it. So, you know, I think there's room for all of, all of these um, techniques to exist in, in musical theatre. Yeah, yeah. You, just, just a handful of shows that you've choreographed in the Heights, Violet, Spring Awakening once. They all take place in, in different geographical locations. They're informed by different cultures, um, different dance language, different styles. How do you prepare for a, for a piece that you're about to choreograph? What's the homework um, that you do before you go in? Just a whole bunch of research and then making sure I'm surrounded by a team that is equipped to tell the story, you know, in the, in the best way possible. Um, yeah, I mean you know, coming up with the movement language in once, you know, that took a lot of new thinking for me because every idea I had, you know, I was like, oh, maybe they could do this. And you're like, but they're holding a cello. So I'm not sure that that's possible. Right, so yeah. things like scene changes and just moving a chair from one stage, a side of the stage to the other, you know, that took a lot of creative thinking. Um, and so a lot of that was to come prepared with as many ideas but then you're also relying on what the artist is capable of and what they can bring too. So, you know, in once it turns out the gentleman who played the cello could jump off a 1.5 metre high bar and land on the floor. Like it just what they were able to do was sometimes even better than what I'd imagined. So, you know, we moved pianos with our backs and all sorts of things around that space. So um, that one just took... Uh, a lot of pre-planning and thinking and working alongside um, Richard Carroll as the director. But then, you know, uh, when it came to choreographing Spring Awakening, you know, that was a whole other movement language. I'd seen the incredible sign language production and 
and thought that was so successful. And so I didn't want to do anything near that. So then it became about choreographing, a, finding my own choreographic language through that. It's been, you know, the original Broadway one was quite gestural with contemporary dance influences. So I sort of pitched out with more of a percussive body movement thing. So, yeah, you just, you improvise a lot, you plan a lot, you research a lot, and then um, you just have a go and see and hope and pray it works in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Is choreography um, the natural progression for a dancer? No, not necessarily. There are some amazing choreographers who didn't have perf- performing careers um, and uh, and actually I think, you know, a lot of dancers would prefer to be the vessel as opposed to, um, you know, the creator of the movement. So it just depends on what your um, storytelling is evolved. I think um, it used to be like if we used to look at what we think the rules are, yes, um, you would think a natural progression. But just like not every performer makes a great teacher and not every great teacher has necessarily had a massive performance career. So um, I think you resonate quite quickly if you're a choreographer or not. Um, and what you think the job is, as opposed to what it truly is, can be really different too. It's not just about coming up with the coolest steps. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of other uh, depending on, of course, what what forum you're choreographing in. So yeah, it, it felt like a natural progression from for me. Um, but I've always loved teaching, and I've always connected to making things with um, other dancers. Um, so, yes, it just felt like an extension of play in that way. Um, music theatre is a great, well, making any sort of theatre is a great collaborative experience. Um, and as choreographer, um, you're working with the director, you're obviously working with the musical director to set tempos and, and style, etc. cetera. Um, I imagine that the, the costume designer is also really important with the work that you want to execute absolutely it's um it's the absolute best to work with people who are really good in their departments and then to see um how your how your work relates but yeah costume department they either love or hate me um because you know many times that i've been like well now we need to like flip and backflip in that and we just need to figure out how they can do that in that corset um <laughs> or um but also like costume designers sometimes come to you with a way that a, a costume moves and they're like have you ever thought about incorporating this in the movement and so you know um as long as things stretch uh, I'm okay with whatever amazing design they are and as long as they're safe to dance in but yeah like costume designers are amazing humans but um the teams that I work along uh, the best with are collaborative because my work is only as good as each any other departments, you know. Uh, the music I care so much about and the direction I care so much about and, and the design and the look of it. Um, so, yeah, it's so much better when all of those departments um, like to work in that way and not just like, no, here's your costume. Good luck. <laughs> and I'm and I'm really precious about shoes and safety. And I yeah. guess it was from years of, you know, just hoping and praying for the best in um in some outfits that I've worn as a professional performer. So I'm really conscious that the performers always feel um very safe in what they're wearing, especially shoe-wise. <laughs> a role that uh another role that you're fulfilling at the moment is resident director on the musical Hamilton, which requires a different set of skills again. Tell us about the role of resident director and, and what does that require you you to do? Yeah, so um, it's uh, the first time I've ever been resident director. Um, I've been resident choreographer before and I've directed my own stuff, but this title is, is basically I become the Australian um, caretaker of, of the direction of the show. Um, I learned the show from the US team and then helped build it here in Australia. And then my job is to, you know, just maintain the, the authenticity of the show, the integrity of the show, to also then teach um, any new cast members to teach all the understudies and covers. Um, in Hamilton, there are 14 people off stage that cover the show. So, um, and they all cover multiple roles. So, um, you know, once I've got the onstage company ready and noting them a couple of times a week, then also you're rehearsing with the offstage company to make sure that they're ready to jump in 
um, and taking them into the show as, as well. Uh, and then, you know, just liaising with all the other departments to, um, you know, make sure the show is as close to opening night you know, uh, as it can be, which is which is different and challenging in a long run of a show. And I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful show to learn on and to be a part of and to be entrusted with. So, um, yeah, it's a big one. There are a lot of words. You know, it's, there are a lot of songs. It's a huge task. Yes, it kicks my butt. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's um, it's. It's so fulfilling, especially, you know, I'm so proud of our Australian company and every time a new actor takes to the stage and takes ownership of and holds the legacy of this story, you feel like you're a small part of the continuation of that. Um, but, yes, it's, it's uh, as of this moment, like we were open for five months, so it's, it's still just in its infancy, really. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah and, and Hamilton is actually... Yeah, Hamilton is actually one of the very few shows where Tommy Kale, the original director, really encourages the resident director and the dance supervisor to, you know, um, feel like they're a part of the storytelling and they're not just like, you know, um, reformatting what work already existed. He really asked me a lot of questions on my own opinion on the work and, you know, we talked about a lot. So you feel like, you know, you you have a voice there as well. Um, but also if Tommy Kale says this is how the scene goes, I want to believe him because he's one of the best directors in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> how precious is that experience? It sounds like he um, is tailoring this production for the Australian company rather than bringing in a particular shape and saying this is how it goes, which yeah, you hear about with which, other musicals. Yeah, so um, it's just this unicorn of musicals. Hamilton the associate team that came out they were phenomenal they've also put up I think we were their sixth or seventh company and every company has slight different nuances to the storytelling depending on the actors telling the story so I mean I've been in major musicals and you never get that opportunity as an actor to feel like you have you know necessarily an opinion on on the way that the storytelling goes so the actors felt really empowered in our room which was which you which hasn't been my experience as a performer. So it was really exciting to be a part of the room where they were like, great, what's your opinion on this? How do you feel about this? So I think that's a part of its magic and its success is because, you know, it's not just relying on the hype. It really asks the integrity of the work to be told every night. And, uh, yeah, they're very clever people who put this show together, and that's for sure. <laughs> very clever, very smart indeed. Amy, what's your favourite part of the theatre? Rehearsals are my favourite part because as a creative, I go in with a vision of what I think it's going to be and then you get to, and then you get to make the thing with humans and some days it's good and some days it's terrible, but you're never more present, exhausted, tired or inspired than you are in those rehearsal periods. And sometimes, like, people do extraordinary things in rehearsal rooms that might never make it to the stage and that's so special or to see an actor come to life for the very first time and find something they didn't know was inside. Like, it's just such a privilege to be in a rehearsal room with extraordinarily creative people and to help, you know, um, help them see bigger than what they thought was possible. So, yeah, rehearsals are my favourite because you no costumes, no lights, no sets. It's literally just humans with their skill and the text and um I think that's pretty special and I'm not sure I think that needs to be special for a reason because it takes this show always takes on a whole new life once it adds all those other beautiful design elements. Uh, Amy I want to um recite some lyrics here which I think will resonate quite hugely with you. Uh, Kiss today goodbye the sweetness and the sorrow wish me luck the same to you but I can't regret what I did for love what I did for love. What have you done for love? Oh gosh, it's a, it's um it's so funny to think that those lyrics were written in 1975, but currently in September in 2021, they just make me so emotional. Um what have I done for the love of this career is it's cracked me open in ways that I didn't know was possible as a human and it's taught me the power of 
the ability to keep going and to have the audacity to keep going and the resilience of just being a human. What I've done for love of this industry, cracked my ribs, you know, blistered, <laughs> bled, you know, done, been, got so many physical scars, a couple of emotional scars. Um, but even now when we're not doing what we love, I just couldn't pick another career. Like, I, I tell you what, I um, last year I tried to get a job at um, Harris Farm, at Woolworths and at Coles. I applied to all three and I got rejected by all three, which really, you know, they just didn't care about my Helpman nomination. Um, and <laughs> even, even, even then I just, you know, like every time the world stops, you're like, should I keep doing this? It's so hard. <laughs> And it's so unknown. But I look back and I'm like, it's never been known. I would never have known as awkward, not that talented, but quirky little Amy at 13 to be 37 and be like, you're directing massive scale musicals professionally and this is what you do for a living. So I don't know. It's... um. I think it's taught me a lot more about life than I it, than I've taught you know than I've contributed to it. So what I did for love, I just keep going. Oh my god, I just keep hoping and praying that I I leave the industry better than I found it. That's what I'm hoping to do. Well, look, Amy Campbell, I have no doubt that you are well on the way to doing that. Um, let's hope that it's uh, sooner rather than later that you make your directorial debut with a chorus line uh, coming to a theatre near you in 2022. Um, so hang in there. I mean, it's a shitty time that the uh, performing arts sector is going through at the moment. All of our listeners uh, wish you the best of luck. And um, yeah, a chorus line may it come very soon. Thank you. Amy is quite the talent and it is super to see that she is on the rise as one of our most brilliant and inspired theatre makers. And we wish her all the very best for her A Chorus Line in 2022. And all good wishes to uh, the team at Darlinghurst Theatre, who, like all of our arts organisations, are navigating the pandemic with considerable challenge. And perhaps the saddest sight of all, empty theatres. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.